Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The revival of our languages was a model for the revival of our foods, how possible it is to have aspects of our culture that were experienced by our living elders and by our elders who were recorded, but then being able to bring them out of that memory and making them lived experiences. Our foods are very similar. This is all done because of love, love that we share both for one another and for our cultures, for our families. It's all part of that momentum. Welcome back to Point of Origin, Episode 20, Indigenous Foodways. It is impossible to have a podcast or a magazine or even really a point of view at all on food origins without first centering Native communities. Today's guests represent a cross-section of the Indigenous food communities of North America, from the kitchen to the media. We begin with Sean Sherman, who goes by the moniker of Sous Chef, which is also the name of his award-winning cookbook of the same title. Sean is unquestionably the most visible Native American chef in the United States. He was raised on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, and after becoming a chef in his 20s, he quickly came to the realization that he wanted to cook the food of his own ancestors and shifted his cuisine from European cooking to that of his Lakota ancestry. Now, with the creation of the Indigenous Food Lab in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Sherman is leading the development of a restaurant, educational, and training center that will further his mission of reintegrating native foods into tribal communities and diets throughout North America. Here's Sean. I grew up on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, so I'm actually enrolled with the Ogallala Lakota Sioux Tribe there. Um, So I spent uh, most of my youth on Pine Ridge Reservation, and I uh, did high school and college in Spearfish, South Dakota, which is in the Black Hills, and then I moved to Minneapolis, which is where I currently am today. And what was your experience like uh, growing up on a reservation? 
Well, you know, the Pioneers Reservation, I think it's the third largest reservation in the U.S. Um, it's a lot of land space, so it takes up a huge chunk of southern South Dakota. Um, the landscape is uh, kind of rolling hills, uh, kind of sparse grasses. So, the, um, And we're also really close to the Black Hills, too, which is, you know, kind of the spiritual center for Lakota. You know, Pine Ridge is also has been the poorest area of the United States ever since its inception, pretty much. So, you know, 70% of the population living in um, poverty, or so making less than $6,000 for the entire household. Um, and we saw a lot of issues. For those of us who are unfamiliar, what would you want people to know about the Oglala Lakota? Um, you know, the Oglala and the, and the Lakota, um, all the groups um, in general, it's a pretty large group. Um, there's quite a few different Lakota tribes across South Dakota um, in that region. Um, and here in Minnesota, you know, our relatives, the Dakota, live out this way. A lot of the work that we do is really just raising awareness to some of the histories of these places because, you know, I wasn't really, I wasn't researching ancient history. This was just my great-grandfather's era when all of this harsh change was happening to my family. And, you know, it's very, there's very similar stories out there um, from many different tribes and many different families all across the U.S., and um, I, I got my first executive chef position in Minneapolis when I was pretty young. I was only like 20, barely 27 or something like that. And as a chef in the city, I had access to all sorts of great food and there's a lot of great culture around. So I learned a lot of different styles of cuisines. Um, and then I uh, one day just realized, you know, that I knew very little about my own ancestry and my own heritage food. I could, you know, name hundreds of European recipes and only a handful of Lakota recipes that I felt, you know, weren't tarnished or didn't have the influence of European colonizers in the recipes. So it really, and plus, you know, just looking around, like there was nothing, like there was no, you can find food from all over the world, but no restaurants that represented the land that we're standing on. And that's kind of the status quo today. You know, you have giant cities like Manhattan, Chicago, L.A., and zero Native American restaurants, you know, in those in those metropolis. And it's like that across the way. So it shot me on a path to really understand, like, what were my Lakota ancestors eating and how are they preserving and storing foods and what kind of herbs and plants were they collecting. You know, today we really focus on North America. So we look at North American traditional food systems and uh, really try to understand the diversity that sits out there and all these beautiful lessons that we can learn from indigenous knowledge of how to live sustainably in our regions and how they live sustainably in their regions, utilizing primarily plant knowledge when it came down to it. It's an immense amount of stuff to study and to learn and bring back and help strengthen them through their own traditional foods. There's just so much health there. Hearing you talk about your your path to becoming a sous chef, it's a story that is very reminiscent of chefs that we hear from marginalized groups, from people of color and from other members of Native communities. And it's a really beautiful moment that we're in, and I, and I often do refer to this moment um, in our work because it comes up so frequently. When you are thinking about or talking about decolonizing your food, presenting a cuisine that is really a, a pre-colonial cuisine. Why is that such a central part of the narrative for you? And why is that such an important part of, of what you're bringing forth in your work? 
You know, I mean, there's a lot to that question, of course. Um, and a lot of our work was just discovering what happened in history. Like, how did we lose so much knowledge? You know, because I look at, uh, you know, my life 100 years prior to my birth um, in 1874, all of my Lakota ancestors still had 100% of their indigenous knowledge and education intact. So like, why why did we lose so much in such a short amount of time um, was kind of the question I started asking and really researching that um, and seeing the beauty and the diversity of it. Cause you know, even though our sites are set on understanding North American cuisines and food systems from Mexico through Alaska, really the work uh, resonates on a global scale um, because of, you know, indigenous families from everywhere from South America, from Africa, India, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, you know, went through a very similar um, history of being colonized and the loss and the damage of their indigenous knowledge, the dismantling of these cultures, you know, is uh, is harsh. Uh, having that history of you know, surviving, you know, so well in, in these different diverse regions, utilizing what's around them and how we can apply that in today's world. One of the things that we did was to, you know, remove colonial ingredients and try to really focus on regional flavors. So cutting out things like dairy and wheat flour and cane sugar and beef, pork and chicken, um, because those ingredients didn't exist in some of our, in most of our regions not that long ago. We chose to only cook with this healthy indigenous food base. We only make healthy food, you know. You know, so cutting out fry bread, for example, was a just a kind of a statement of saying, you know, that piece has been integrated into our indigenous communities and it's something that we love, but it's also not very good for us. And there's so much more to explore, so much diversity that we should be exploring and not allowing this one piece to identify us when in reality it has very little to do with us historically. You mentioned something that is astonishing and I think bears repeating, which is that in major metropolitan cities in the U.S., like Chicago, like New York, uh, there are no Native American restaurants. Tell me about your restaurant, how it came to fruition, and what your hopes are for it. Well, this very first restaurant that we're preparing to open this year is called Indigenous Food Lab, and it's a part of our nonprofit we created a few years ago. So we started a nonprofit called Natives.org, which is an acronym for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. And through that, um, we created this brand, Indigenous Food Lab. So Indigenous Food Lab is a 501c3 restaurant concept where the public will be able to come in and try a lot of creative indigenous foods that we'll be able to offer. Um, but really it was about creating a space where we can have a classroom and be able to teach um, the, just have the offer, uh, create an, you know, accessible indigenous education. So we want to be able to teach about Native American agriculture and seed saving and farming and wild food and ethnobotany and plant identification, medicinals, culinary applications, food preservation, language, arts, history, crafting, and just create a really safe and accessible space um, for that Indigenous-focused education. And um, utilizing this education and training center um, to work directly with tribal communities in our vicinity and help them to develop their own healthy Indigenous kitchen that's particular to their tribe and their community and their history and their land and region. Um, and being a, a support system for them, knowing how hard food service operations can be. But creating that food access in these much-needed communities where sometimes these small communities can have upwards to 60% type 2 diabetes um, because of their food access situation and surviving off a commodity food program and things like that. 
And our hopes and goals are to replicate this entire process and open up indigenous food labs in urban areas all around the entire nation um, to help um, and work with tribal communities in its vicinity and help strengthen those communities through food. Why do you think it is that we have not seen more Native American restaurants open in this country? It's just the history of how indigenous peoples have been treated, of course. So you look at, um, you know, if you read a book like An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar Oritz, you know, she um, walks through those histories really carefully and thoroughly. And it talks about how much damage was done throughout the entire 1800s. You know, you look at the start of the 1800s where what the United States was was a very young government and country. Uh, But we see this massive push through the 1800s and this massive loss of indigenous land and culture. And we see huge and horrible atrocities happening and genocide is happening. You know, there's bounty systems on indigenous peoples. You know, California's got an extremely ugly history. Minnesota's got an ugly history, but it's kind of like that across the board. And then we see the 1900s after the reservation systems are set and assimilation and dismantling of indigenous cultures um, of all across our nation. We weren't even American citizens until the 1920s. Um, we couldn't celebrate our own religion until the 1970s. We weren't able to vote until the 1960s, right? And just so much poverty was created through these reservation systems. So we just crawled out of that of the 1900s. Um, and into the 2000s, where we're seeing a lot more indigenous youth being empowered and um, becoming highly educated and becoming highly skilled and being able to raise awareness to these stories. And, you know, we're going to see a lot more indigenous presence um, and a lot more understanding of our history as time moves forward is kind of what we see. You know, there's uh, 576 tribes in the U.S., 622 in Canada, I think, and, you know, 20% of Mexico identifies as indigenous, and there's just a lot of indigenous cultures and diversity still alive today. And, you know, with indigenous diversity, we can really showcase what true uh, regions are and true North American flavors are. And you look at the European diet, um, and it's so limited in its plant diversity. And there's so much more that we can add to our diets by and really truly understand the landscape that we're on in North America by absorbing um, some of these past knowledge bases. So it's really important that we just continue on this path and continue to grow. And we're hoping as we open up these indigenous restaurants that we really make a change. We want to see a future where indigenous kids in the future will grow up having access to their foods, knowing exactly what they are, knowing the names of those foods and their languages, how they feel when they eat those foods compared to some fast foods. We just feel like if you can control your food, you can control your future, just like our ancestors used to. And there's going to be a lot of strength and empowerment um, in being able to create that food sovereignty out there. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is Neil Strauss. 
host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our next guests are Vincent Medina and Louis Trevino, owners of Cafe Olone in Berkeley, California. Both Louis and Vincent are members of the Olone tribe, the indigenous people who for 20,000 years inhabited California's central coast from San Francisco to Monterey, from Monterey through the Salinas Valley. Louis and Vincent's work centers on the revival of Ohlone food traditions and using their cafe as an archival project to keep tradition alive and accessible. So good day to you all. It's Vincent Medina. So my name is Vincent Medina and I'm a member of the Muwekma Ohlone tribe. My family is indigenous to the East Bay, so the eastern shores of San Francisco Bay the area that today encompasses Berkeley, Oakland, Hayward, Castro Valley, Fremont, down to about San Jose. Um, our family has lived in this area consistently. We've never left and we never will. Knowing that we, where we come from and knowing that our community has been able to stay put in this place, it's a testament to the strength of our elders and our ancestors who also experienced um, a lot of pain during colonization colonization that's still unfolding today in front of us, just in different ways. I'm the co-founder of Cafe Aloni and Makamham, which my partner, Louis Trevino, he's also the co-founder of this. 
And we grew up here in this area aware of our identity, aware that we come from this place, that we're indigenous to this place, and that this land also shapes our culture as well. Because of how hard colonization hit us here in the East Bay and throughout Metro California, it meant that much of our culture couldn't be carried on the organic way it was meant to. That wasn't because our elders or those before us didn't care about our culture. That's not true at all. But it was because there were systematic roadblocks that try to stop us from practicing our culture outright. And also, in spite of that, there was resistance that happened in our communities to the theft of our culture and to the suppression of our culture as well. Our ancestors, our elders, our great-grandparents, all of those before us have consistently been working to keep alive the things that matter keep our culture going. And in some cases, when things couldn't be carried on, there was thousands of pages of information in the form of archives in our collective communities that allow us to revive practices with our elders, with my partner, Louis Trevino. We started an organization called Makam Ham first, Makam Ham in Chochenyo language, which is the indigenous language of the East Bay. It means our food. And the entire focus of this work is to revive our food traditions along with every other aspect of our traditional culture that has that was suppressed but also you know documented to be brought back we started this organization because we wanted to see these foods become commonplace in our families again on the dinner tables in our community again and then in september of 2018 we opened cafe aloni which is the first aloni restaurant in modern times and it's over in berkeley and it's a way for us to teach the public about our story but more importantly, to provide a space for our community. Hello everyone, my name is Louis Trevino and I'm Rumsinaloni. My family comes from the Carmel Valley and the Monterey area. And this work we started by the guidance of our elders, both those who were recorded and those who are still with us to revitalize our traditional Ohlone foods as part of a broader revitalization of culture that our communities have gone through for the past few decades. Um, and part of the efforts that our families have had since colonization began. I think what makes in your work notable in this larger uh, movement of moving towards or indigenous or native foodways is that Cafe Ohlone is actually the very first modern Ohlone restaurant, as you say. Do you all feel because European cuisine and because of the infrastructure of formal restaurants and dining has been so far away from spotlighting in native cuisine and ingredients. An additional burden for you all in doing this kind of reclamation work, given how absent indigenous cuisine has been in this country. That's a, it's a good question because growing up when we would talk about our culture, people would have complete unfamiliarity with, with us as, as a people. And so if they didn't know who we are as a people, they, by the nature of that, aren't going to know about our foods or any other aspect of our culture. The thing that this, this uh, concept of, of being indigenous to this place is that these foods, even if people didn't know that they were Ohlone ingredients, they were often still, many of them are still in use. Things like hazelnuts, things like watercress, things like these decadent mushrooms. But when people would often think about these ingredients, 
they're often thought about as being these hugely uh, luxury ingredients that, that often there's no cultural context to understanding that these are indigenous foods. By reinforcing and by teaching people at Cafe Ohlone that our community has never left our homeland, that our culture is beautiful, and that these foods that are indigenous to the East Bay and to Carmel, where Lewis's family is from, that these foods are also delicious as well. Many of them are, are foods that people have eaten in their lifetime. But by showing the way that we eat as Ohlone people, the way that our ancestors traditionally have eaten, we are able to dispel a lot of negative stereotypes just by the nature of how our food is served, how it tastes, the ingredients that it are being prepared, and also how it looks. The food that we make, it's seasonal food. Um, it's, it's food that much of which we gather. We gather much of it in the old village areas here in the East Bay that our family has always lived in. An example of this is just earlier this week on Monday, we went to gather yerba buena, which is a native mint that's familiar to our ancestors, which we call charishmin. And also we went, we went to gather bay and nuts and we went to look for some mushrooms. And as we were out there, we were in an old area where our family has always lived, but it's also an old area that our family has lived before colonization. Now, when we gather these foods in this place and we prepare them in the way that we know our ancestors made them, which is having multiple different dishes together served where you get these flavors of what's growing at the time, what's seasonal, but also you get these different flavors of bitter, of sweet, of salty, of savory, all these different tastes going together at the same time. When people eat our food, they'll often ask, is this indigenous? Is this the way that it's always been prepared? And for our most traditional foods, we'll say, yes, this is the way it's always been prepared. But then for our contemporary foods, we teach people, this is what contemporary Ohlone foods look like in the 21st century. And by people learning about these ingredients and getting to see Ohlone food, and just by the nature of us having this restaurant where for everybody that's dining with us, except for Ohlone people, it's their first time generally having food that's been prepared by Ohlone people and also food that's being prepared in the, in, in the way that we have it at home. They get to see directly the sophistication that we eat with the beauty that we eat with, the meaning that we eat with. And that destroys a lot of negative stereotypes that are out there because it lets us steer the conversation on our own terms. And also it gets to destroy those stereotypes because people get to see sophistication and elegance and beauty. And that pushes back against what's been said about our community through negative textbooks, through anthropology, through university uh, studies of Often we were painted as being this minimalistic, simple people that kind of just barely got by, you know, hunter and gatherers, they called us. And the truth is that our ancestors didn't just barely get by, but they lived in a world full of abundance and they ate well. There's been reasons for over 240 years that our family has been consistently trying to get back to that old way. And it was because our elders and us as a result of that know the value of it, know how know how meaningful it is and know that it's worthy of being protected and fought for. Now, even though many of these ingredients aren't common, and even though, and some of them are, but for many of these ingredients like acorn, like venison, like our quail that we serve, you know, these, often these ingredients and the way that they're prepared are unfamiliar to people. But once they taste it, we hear so often these foods are delicious. Often people will say that they're eating something that 
feels clean, that feels um, rooted. And by being able to teach people about this, again, on our own terms, we can steer this conversation to let them know that these ingredients are indigenous, that these are ingredients that have been loved for generations by our people, and they'll be loved in the future as well. And then they think about these foods in a different way and associate them more with us in our community, which is what we want. I want to ask you about land because it isn't possible to have intellectually honest conversations about native people or cuisine um, without talking about land. How do you source for the restaurant? Um, and how do you all think about uh, land and, of course, agriculture and food that comes from the land? How do you think about the role of, of land in your work? Well, uh, once again, just going back to how how long our people have lived here and how deep the love for this land that we come from is, you know, the East Bay is a relatively small place. It, you know, every bit of our existence comes from here. Our language was shaped by this place. Our, our foods, you know, and our, our culinary ways come from this place and have provided the foods that have nourished our, our ancestors for generations. We have to be good stewards. We have to be responsible. We can't overgather. But we also have to consistently advocate for this place, advocate for the protection of this land, advocate for a clean bay, for clean waterways, for salmon and steelhead to return back to our watersheds, to advocate to make sure that our ancestors, who are also in the ground, that they're protected, that our shell mounds, our mortuary monuments, knowing that every bit of who we are as a people comes from here, that we can't just pack up and move somewhere else. And we never want to either. This is This, this place is part of our of our bodies, you know, it's part of our soul, ever move from here. And we wouldn't ever want to, we would be here till the end. But knowing that, that this place also has provided all of this abundance for our, our people for generations. And the way that the East Bay is composed, it's composed with a series of valleys and microclimates and huge amounts of biodiversity and a massive ridgeline, which goes down into the East Bay flatlands, into these massive marshes, which then go into the bay where salt is gathered. Now, in the old days, before colonization, for thousands of years, our ancestors managed this area and through a series of controlled burns. And those burns, what they would do is they would take out the overgrowth, which today leads to these big wildfires that we're seeing ever more prevalent than, than we could ever remember, you know, but these wildfires that are catastrophic wouldn't happen back then. They would be managed through these controlled burns, which take out the, the overgrowth at the same time. It stimulates the plants that our people would want to see come stronger. Those oak groves, those seeding plants, those um, being able to have those nut plants, hazelnuts and black walnuts, being able to have every type of food imaginable. And then these microclimates and this huge amount of biodiversity that allow different food to exist relatively close to one another, just within a few miles, meant that, meant that there was never shortages. There was never famine in those old days. When colonizers came in when, when Europeans came in and tried to change our, our way of doing things and then later tried to change us, or in some cases, as I was describing, even physically kill us. Our people during that time were outlawed from doing those controlled burns and outlawed also from gathering in that traditional way. My great grandmother, who was born on that old rancheria, she would gather. She would gather as much as she could. And we still know some of her favorite plants that she liked to gather and we serve them at Cafe Ohlone. So in spite of those challenges, our people also are courageous and brave and they refuse. Now, if you can imagine, you know, let's fast forward to 2020, 
and the East Bay, it's still our home. We've never left, but it also is looks much different in many areas than it did 200 years ago, than it did even 50 years ago, than it even did 10 years ago because of all of the development that's happening, because of tech, because of gentrification, because of the urbanity that's constantly encroaching on these open spaces, which in many cases are home to those village areas that our ancestors have always lived in. Because of this, we can't gather everything that our people did before. We can't go and burn those old areas. And often up until recently, when we would go up and gather, it would be even illegal for us to do so as the first people, technically. Even if we, people weren't being caught by cops, often people just standing there looking at us, like if we're doing something wrong, like if we're criminals just for being in our own place. And if you could imagine the discomfort that comes from other people looking like that. But in spite of that, you know, we find the same courage that those before us did, which is not to, not to stop doing these things because these ways are valuable. An example of this is when Lewis and I were gathering last Monday, we were gathering in this old area that our family has always lived, always like from before colonization to now to, you know, be there tomorrow too. But as we were there, there's all of these rich connections that come from being in that space. The air smells sweet of minty yerba buena and the spicy bay laurel and tule that's in the background in Willow. You get to be able to get these bits of clarity to how that world was back then, even if it's much more overgrown than it was 200 years ago. And in those bits of clarity, you see the beauty, you know, and you see the meaning of all of that. And it makes sense. But then going back into the flatlands of that urban area, we're also part of that world too. You know, I grew up right here and this is also the urbanity of the East Bay also shaped who I am as well, you know, and that's part of my identity also. And so while we want our foods to be fully traditional, fully, you know, connected to those old ways, we also don't want to shy away from embracing the fact that we're modern people. These foods aren't locked in a museum. They're not locked just one period of time but they're living and they're part of 2022. When chocolate was introduced here, um, it was something that was embraced by our community and people took a liking to pretty quickly and people traded for it. It's, um, it's something that, that, you know, is, uh, chocolate's just good as well, you know, so you can see why like chocolates, it's something that we still love in our community today. But one thing that we wanted to do is when we're making these traditional foods, to occasionally add something that wasn't here 200 years ago that fits the taste of our living community. The chocolate that we serve at Cafe Aloni, it comes from Zapotec chocolate makers from Zapotec Pueblo in, um, in central Mexico, San Javier de Zora. And it's a way for us to be able to keep those connections going with other indigenous communities, you know, across North America and, and also to be able to embrace something that was introduced here that wasn't here, you know, uh, before colonization but also that is loved by our people today. You know, sometimes we'll um, make things in a modern way instead of, you know, using the traditional way, but sometimes we'll, we'll, make the, we'll make whatever dish we're making in the most traditional way as well, using old baskets for an example to, to be able to do the work instead of ovens and, and stovetops. And this is what contemporary Ohlone identity, you know, what it looks like today. We're talking about land increasingly difficult as there's this, you know, um, movement by some people to go out and many people call it foraging, you know, into our, our homeland without much thought and taking resources that Ohlone people are out there looking for as well. And often it will mean that something has already been depleted by other people without those same cultural connections and often just trying to sell it uh, for a profit or something like that, which can, of course, be very, very frustrating. 
but we still, in spite of that, you know, we, we persevere. We gather as much as we can. We gather our salt from the Bay Shore, from the same salt ponds that our ancestors, that they shaped directly with their own hands. Salt ponds that were later used by Leslie and Salt and Morton Salt to, to make a profit off of East Bay salts. But we go out there and we gather the same salts that we, we know our ancestors have gathered from in those same places. Even if we find a big patch, again, you know, about reciprocity and relationship and doing the right thing when we're gathering, it would be wrong for us to overgather more than what we can. So we never overgather. And if we do gather from an area that only has a few, we'll, we'll gather the smallest amount possible just to savor a taste of it, not overgather and make sure we're being responsible. Our foods, our traditional foods are completely inseparable from all other aspects of our culture. Our foods are given to us at our creation time. That's how it's taught to us. So those foods are deeply embedded in the specific places that we come from. So as we work with our languages, Lefense and I are both uh, very active in the traditional languages of our families, the revival of those languages. Our languages were both not spoken for at least two generations, um, but were heard by our great-grandparents and spoken by that generation. But today those languages are spoken, Chochenyo being the language of the East Bay and Vincent's family, and Rumson being the language of Carmel Valley. So the, the revival of our languages was a model for the revival of our foods, how possible it is to have aspects of our culture that were experienced by our living elders and by our elders who were recorded, but then being able to bring them out of that memory and making them lived experiences. Our foods are very similar. This is all done because of love, love that we share both for one another and for our cultures, for our families. It's all part of that momentum. So another note about land access, because obviously it's always been central to conversations about sovereign diets, and it still is today. For Vincent and Lewis, sourcing ingredients from their native land has different stakes than their other chef counterparts. Much of what they're looking for has already been taken or overgathered by non-Indigenous and sold for profit. Instead, they have to be creative about how they source in order for their food to tell the story they want it to tell. Like finding a quail egg farmer in a nearby county that they can develop a relationship with. Or varietals of heirloom potatoes that merely approximate their own. And when they do gather, they are mindful not to take too much, to not deplete the crop so that some is left for others. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
oldest girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by oldest girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In Navajo food, some of those ingredients are corn, beans, and squash. And and you're going to see that in a lot of other Native communities too, the Three Sisters, because those were things that you could eat pretty much all year. We have a variety of different soups and and kind of like tamales, corn packed up in its in, in a corn husk and baked underground. Andy Murphy is the host of the Toasted Sister podcast, a podcast that highlights the chef and farmers who work to preserve indigenous food heritage. She's also a member of Navajo Nation. She and I discussed how displacement and poverty are impediments to connecting with indigenous ingredients. As Andy tells us, she didn't grow up in a home where traditional Navajo recipes were cooked. Instead, like many households in the United States, she ate things like spaghetti and mashed potatoes. But one of my favorites and I think it's like every every other Navajo's favorite is um, blue corn mush. That, that's something that I didn't eat a lot when I was a kid. Um, we didn't have a lot of that in our house. But lately, since I've been really paying attention to native food and was curious about, you know, the different ways you can prepare blue corn, I have uh, blue corn mush, you know, every every week, a couple times a week. You know, it's about an ingredient being really that versatile to our our palates today. Inviting these ingredients and these flavors back into our our pantries, like right now. You know, I'm thinking about foods now and thinking about the kind of foods that I had, you know, growing up prepackaged was because we were poor. <laughs> we were we were really poor and. 
um, you know, I kind of feel bad for the the little girl I was and and for my family back then is because we struggled a lot, but at least we ate. And I think that's where a lot of Native people come from. At least we ate. At least we we have uh, food for the next day or Maybe some some people don't even have that, but I'm. I'm... Yeah, because a, a lot of people don't make the connection between, first of all, the the poverty and the diet um, with the the displacement and um, and with the genocide of Native American people. But as it relates to the diet in particular, when when people are living you know, on reservations, they are not allowed to practice traditional foodways. They don't have access to foraging. They don't have access to hunting. They don't have access to the same types of agriculture. And those eating customs, those traditions, that that intergenerational knowledge is supplanted with like McDonald's. And of course, for children who grow up in this country, we all, no matter what our ethnic backgrounds are or what our means are, that's like a universal thing. So there's a lot of complex factors, I think, in that inform the diets of Native American people. And yet now we see really disproportionately negative health outcomes as a result of this. A lot of these issues with health and that the health disparities in, in Native America are because of access to food. So it's a really big challenge, and it's a, and it's a challenge in a couple of ways. You can have lack of access to actual food and actual stores that have food, whether that's a convenience store, some kind of gas station, like a, a flea market or like supermarket. You know, in Navajo Nation, some people have to travel, make a whole day out of it just to get to the nearest grocery store. You can have that lack of access to knowledge, cooking knowledge. A lot of people really don't know how to cook or, you know, a lot of people like myself aren't connected to like just traditional food ways. Can't really cook some of these traditional things in my own kitchen, but, you know, I'm I'm trying. You know, some people on the Navajo Nation still don't have water and electricity. Can imagine how hard that is to cook. Some people are living in a household where there's three families living there and trying to produce really quick, easy food. The one very important thing that I learned from all of my work is we need to cook and learn how to cook and find value in that. And we need to bring these ingredients into our own kitchen. It comes down to like an individual person's food sovereignty. Amen. I I wholeheartedly agree, could not agree more. work for me personally as someone that's Choctaw is trying to learn and understand like what is my cuisine and I've been really thankful and very blessed to have different aunties people that I consider aunties or that help me to learn more about our traditional food. Britt Reed works for the Tulalip Health Clinic, a training program that assists Native communities in reclaiming their local food systems. Britt is a member of the I Collective, a coalition of indigenous chefs, cooks, artists, 
culture keepers, and savers, all dedicated to the preservation of Native foodways. She cites the origin of the collective to an incident in 2017 when some white ladies from Portland went to Mexico, stole some recipes, and obtusely proceeded to come back to the United States and brag about what they had just done as part of the promotion for their new business venture. The business didn't last, but the audacity sufficiently ignited an already burgeoning reclamation movement in Native and Indigenous food communities. I'm a member of the I Collective. It was founded in 2017, and it's essentially a collective that has Indigenous chefs, cooks, activists, knowledge keepers and savers, and artists. What we started off as initially, there was an incident that happened years ago where these girls from Portland had famously gone down to Oaxaca and had, through the media, kind of touted how they straight up, like, stole um, these abuelas' recipes for tortillas and other things. And at the same time, here in Seattle, there was an incident with this upper-scale restaurant who had gone ahead and also culturally appropriated a bunch of Jose Lich foods and was selling them $100 per ticket or more without actually bringing in anybody that was native to the whole process. And so they went on Toasted Sister podcast, um, Annie Murphy's podcast, and had had this episode called Not So Gentle Indians, part one, where they were talking about all these different things. And then after that, kind of formulated the I Collective. And our first pop-up series was in New York City. And the initial concept of that was to be able to address the myth of Thanksgiving and also to be able to showcase our traditional foods and talk about different issues. I want to ask you about your own journey on this path because you mentioned that you are a descendant of Choctaw Nation, but you weren't actually born in a tribal community. So what was it that brought you to this, I guess, enlightenment that you wanted to use your identity and food specifically as a, as a means of returning to your ancestral homeland, so to speak? Yeah, for me, um, I'm an adoptee, and for people that don't know what that means, and to give like wider context, essentially, starting back in the 1800s, there was a movement in the United States to, of course, like remove Native people from Native lands, um, and then to reinforce that they wouldn't be on their lands anymore. A part of that was putting them in boarding schools. And General Pratt, who was a famous general, had said that the boarding schools, the reasoning for that was to, to kill the Indian, save the man. And when we talk about U.S. history, especially like in the past years, people are appalled that the government is imprisoning kids and taking them away from their families. And they say this is in America. That's 100% America. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been doing this since the beginning. And so they would take the children away from their communities, oftentimes shipping them across the country, so that if they ran away, they had no way of getting back. So there's also a lot of kids that did run away and died trying to get back home along the way. And they literally, like, beat and abused out in every form of abuse um, to assimilate them. And we have a lot of issues in our community still from that time. But starting in the... 40s or 50s, the government had a meeting, and that meeting they said that they wanted to shift to adopting out Native kids instead of putting them in boarding schools as a money-saving measure. 
and that it would still do the best, basically do the same thing of assimilating kids into like white like Euro-American society and, and so like as I was like digging into like rejoining Native community up here reconnecting folks back home in Oklahoma and then also like other Choctaw people that happen to be up here in the Seattle area because there's actually like quite a bit of Choctaw people here in the Northwest. I started wondering okay like what is the food tradition here you know, like, I'd do my little, like, Google or whatever, um, like, Choctaw foods. And, of course, like, Tonchi Labona would come up, or, like, Ulashki, like, grape dumplings, and wild onions and, and eggs, and banaha, which is essentially kind of, like, one of the tamales that they have down in Oaxaca, but ours with beans and, like, cornmeal. And, and then as I was going along, I started looking into traditional foods and food sovereignty and what it means for our communities whenever like we've been forcibly removed from our traditional foods. It really concerns me when the UN says that by 2050, they expect for the world food supply to completely collapse. But thinking of like Tulalip right now, like I went around with like the nutritionist when, um, back when we had one here. And they have several markets here on the reservation, but when we went to every single one of them, the only thing that was fresh produce on the reservation outside of Walmart was one banana. Really, that's, that's really all the fresh produce we have. This is the only non-processed thing. So that concerns me as someone that works for the diabetes program, right? And also I know like tenuous relationships around food and trying to access food that Tulalip people have had drastic measures back in the day to just try and send people in to, like, get food. There's still some pain here in the community around that. I remember last spring, in June, the salmon berries were out. My nephew, I think, like, two and a half and four at the time, something like that, walking them around and showing them the bushes. And I just remember, like, how excited and how much they lit up seeing those salmon berries and be like, can I eat it? And they're like, yeah, dude, just take it off a bush. You can eat it. I swear to God, they're in, like, that candy room in Willy Wonka. I think that's such an important memory, like something I super want to strive towards to make sure that people where I live are able to have that same experience, especially kids, and like have those relationships with the plants. And that way too, should something happen, that they have that knowledge of this is a plant here that will take care of us and will provide for us and that we can eat. Part of that whole sovereignty as well. One last thought from today's episode, you know, over and over, I am reminded of the absurdity of discussing native food in antiquity. The magic of Cafe Olone in Berkeley, for instance, is that Vincent is not only in the land of his ancestors, but he also grew up in Oakland. So he is equally part of that native story and a contemporary food story happening in the Bay Area. The more we resist the urge to conflate indigeneity with antiquity, the less likely we are to perpetuate the language of erasure. And lastly, if you're a forager or have friends who are into such activities, I would encourage you all to see if there are existing efforts by Native American communities in your area who your foraging could help support. And even for those of us who don't forage, I hope we realize that penalizing a population that has always relied on wild foods is very, very wrong, particularly when we've supplanted those diets 
with industrial food systems on reservations all across the United States that have spread illness and death to these same communities. The industrial food system continues to grow without oversight, with impunity, and with subsidies. As we are now all thinking more than ever about our diet and its origins, I hope that we can use this moment as a way to advocate for food sovereignty for Native communities all throughout the United States. Thank you to the sous chef, Sean Sherman, Andy Murphy, host of the Toasted Sister podcast, Louis Trevino and Vincent Medina from Ohlone Cafe in Berkeley, California, and Britt Reed, chef at Tulalip in Marysville, Washington. Thank you to Simon Lavender for creating the music featured in today's episode. This is our last episode of Point of Origin season two. We will be back very soon with Point of Origin Season 3, but in the meantime, why not go backwards? Catch up on the entire catalog of the previous 19 episodes. You can also follow us on IG for the very latest of all things Whetstone. I'd like to thank our iHeartRadio team for another great season. Thanks to the amazing Whetstone team and our co-founder, Mel Shi. I'm Steven Satterfield, the Origin Forager. We'll be back soon with more from Whetstone's Point of Origin podcast, the world of food worldwide. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.